Hello, and welcome to A Daily Walk with Pastor John Randall, a ministry of Calvary Chapel San Juan Capistrano. Open your Bible and join us as together we seek to grow in our daily walk with the Lord. Here in Romans chapter 14, the Apostle Paul addresses an area that was a consistent concern and even at times a problem within the churches that he planted. That is the problem of division and the challenge of maintaining unity. On the day of Pentecost, when the church expanded in Jerusalem, the majority of its members were Jewish. On the day the church started, 3,000 people were added to the church, and the majority of its members were Jewish individuals. Thus, their perspective, their convictions were similar. They had grown up in a comparable cultural and religious environment. They understood one another. They came from the same way of life. But as the church continued to grow, it took a while before the gospel reached the Gentiles. But in time, the Gentiles also heard the good news and accepted Jesus as their Savior. Paul then became the apostle to the Gentiles, and he began planting churches that were now integrated, both with Jews and Gentiles. There were those who had come out of ritualistic Judaism, as well as those who had been delivered from idolatrous paganism. They were all under the same roof. And within the blended congregation, there were obvious differences and even disagreements. In addition to that, there were Jewish believers who felt that it was their responsibility to make their way into the newly founded, predominantly Gentile churches and inform them that in order to be truly saved, they needed to keep the law of Moses, they needed to observe the dietary laws, and all of the Gentile men must be circumcised. And if they didn't do that, well, then they weren't truly saved. The Jews wanted the Gentiles to become Jews. At that point, it became such a divisive issue that Paul and Barnabas found it necessary to travel to the church in Jerusalem and straighten out these misunderstandings. And so there in Acts chapter 15, they met with the apostles in what is called the Jerusalem Council. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, the apostles decided that the demands that were being placed upon the Gentiles by the Jews should be dismissed. But at the same time, they gave the Gentile believers guidelines that would help maintain unity amongst their Jewish brethren. Now, one of the areas that became a, a point of contention had to do with one's liberty. That is, what believers were free to do and what they were not free to do. 
Convictions on the part of some were very narrow, while convictions on the part of others were rather wide. These differences of personal conviction caused factions, infighting, disagreements, and at times, division. And the differences in the churches then revolved around the diet that one had and the religious days that one observed. Now to us, that may seem petty, insignificant, or irrelevant, but it became a serious problem. And the truth is that in the church today, we have equivalent issues that have the potential to cause division. Let me just give you a couple of examples. Homeschool versus public school. (gasps) God forbid. These are things that people divide over in the church. iPhone versus Android. I mean, this is just issues. Should a Christian drink wine? Should they not drink wine? Should a believer listen to secular music or strictly Christian music? Should a church have instruments or no instruments? And these are things that are a matter of opinion. They're not necessarily mapped out in Scripture. In order to solve the problem of potential division, what Paul does is he appeals to the stronger and more mature believers in the congregation. And he encourages them how they are to respond. And as we read through Paul's instructions, it's important to remember that what we're about to consider is in light of scriptural limitation. Meaning, Paul wasn't dealing here with issues that were sinful or biblical. Rather, He is confronting those areas that are not completely mapped out in Scripture. These are differences that were based upon one's personal conviction, one's upbringing, one's culture, one's background. They were not dealing with salvation, but rather Paul refers to them as doubtful things. They were matters of opinion, and opinions vary. How do we as a church avoid division over doubtful things? How do we stay united in the midst of differing opinions or personal preferences? First of all, it begins with a mutual acceptance of one another. It says here in verses 1 and 2, receive, mark that word, receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. The gospel of the new covenant in Jesus Christ did not include ceremonial or dietary restrictions. Some Gentile believers, like some Jews, were troubled by the eating of certain foods, but for different reasons. Because of the idolatry and immorality related to their former religious practices, they could not bring themselves to eat meat or any other food that had been used as an offering 
to a pagan deity. You see, what would happen is the Gentiles, they could go to these markets where the meat that had been offered to idols would be sold for a much cheaper price. You could get a really good deal at this particular market. It had been offered to idols, but they were believers. They didn't care about idols. Idols weren't anything to them. It was all about, well, it was about the good deal on meat. So if you invited a Jew over to your house and you cooked it and he'd ask you, where'd you get it from? He said, I got it at the market. Which market? The idol market? Yes, I got it there. I can't eat that. It's been offered to idols. So there was this division between them at the church barbecue. Here, here's what Paul said. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, listen to what he said. He said, therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there's no other God but one. But food, he said, it doesn't commend us to God. For neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. But beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. Paul agreed. There's not a big deal. These, this meat, it's a good deal. It's okay. It's just meat. That idol is just a piece of stone or metal. It doesn't matter. However, he said, if your brother or your sister comes over to your home and they stumble because of that, then you need to be sensitive to that. Avoiding division over doubtful things begins with having a mutual acceptance and receiving one another. Folks, listen, it's one thing to have discussions about differences of opinions, but it's not worth getting into debates that lead to division over trivial things. Paul said, receive them, welcome them, embrace them, for those Jews and Gentiles, they needed to accept one another in spite of their cultural differences and personal preferences. They needed to see from the other person's perspective. That's really important. Sometimes what happens is we are not spiritually mature enough to do that. We don't even want to dialogue about it. We don't even want to discuss it. I'm, this is what we're doing. Okay, no problem. I, I can see your point. That's wonderful. But we ought to be able to dialogue about our differences of opinion. There are some characteristics that are found within the weaker brother or sister. First of all, the weaker brother or sister often assumes that they are stronger. They can judge by appearance. They can become upset if someone does something with which they disagree and conclude that their motives are wrong. They're often extremely opinionated and dogmatic about doubtful things. The weaker brother or sister can sometimes even be a burden within the congregation because everywhere they go, there's controversy and a lack of humility and a willingness, as I said, to see it perhaps from a different perspective than their own. Now, that's not to say that they're not going to mature in time, but in the meantime, how do we respond Paul says, don't get into a debate with them over doubtful things. Instead, just receive them. The second encouragement he gives is not only don't debate with them, but don't despise them. And that's usually what follows. He says in verse 3, let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. Let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has received him. Here we see a progression that can lead to division. If you don't receive the other person, you can very easily end up 
despising the other person. And the word despise means to throw out as nothing and to treat with contempt, to look at them sideways. The temptation can occur when you have a brother or sister in Christ who's different than you. And the reason that we're not to despise them, regardless of what side of the doubtful conversation you're on, is God doesn't despise them. So if he doesn't despise them, what am I doing despising them? He receives them. And God understands that all of us are growing, that we're all maturing, and he is extremely patient with our development. And thus, we should be patient with the development of our brothers and sisters in Christ as well. Yet this downward spiral continues. It moves from debating to despising to judging. Paul exhorts the church here in verse 3, let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. And who are you, he asks the question, to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand. God is able to make him stand. The word for judge here that Paul uses has no positive element attached to it. It can only be negative and cruel. This is the kind of judging that presumes to appraise the value, the value of another person based on flawed human standards. That is the kind of judging that there is no place for in the body of Christ. And there is a temptation to judge a person who has a more narrow view than you do or a wider view than you do. Paul says, it's not our place to judge. The position of a judge has been reserved for one individual, and that is Jesus. He's the judge. He knows the whole story. And if that person is a believer, they're the Lord's servant. They're not my servant. They're the Lord's servant. When it comes to judging or taking the place of a judge in this context, we're not omniscient. We don't know everything. Therefore, our judgment doesn't have all the facts. You ever made a judgment call and you didn't have all the information and then felt bad after you made that call when you found out more information that you didn't know? You thought, man, I, I jumped to conclusions pretty quickly without really knowing the whole backstory on the situation. I've done that myself more times than I'd like to admit to you. Also, we're not always objective. And so our judgment can be tainted by self-interest. We're not perfect. And thus our judgment can be hypocritical. It's easy for us to spot our sin in somebody else's life. My goodness. Wow, they really struggle. I can see it. How can you see it? Probably because you struggle with the same thing even more so. We're not God, so our judgment has no real jurisdiction like God does. Folks, there are those in this congregation that have a very strong conviction that is more narrow than yours. And you'll find others whose convictions are much broader than yours. And the struggle is not to despise them, not to debate with them, 
not to judge them. Now, you may not have a problem with someone who has a more narrow viewpoint than you. You might even respect it. I respect them. Man, the way they raise their kids, the things they do, I, I respect that. Just don't put that conviction on me. But I respect you. On the other hand, we can go swing the opposite way. We might find someone whose conviction is more broad than ours, and we want to put our conviction on them. It's important for us to remember this fact. We're all in process. <laughs> We're all at different levels of maturity in our growth, in our walk with the Lord, that we are all God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. If you're a Christian here today, you're the Lord's servant. And that Christian brother or that Christian sister that doesn't share your conviction, they belong to Jesus. Jesus is their master. The Father's committed to the work in their life. And what I see as a problem, in my opinion, it isn't a problem to the Lord. In fact, he's working in their heart and in their life in ways that I can't see and often in ways that I don't fully understand. The Lord is the one who begins the good work and he didn't ask me to complete the good work in somebody else. He's going to do it through his Holy Spirit. It's his job. He's able to soften out the rough edges. He's able to alter convictions. He's, he's able to change perspectives. Many a congregation has been torn apart by doubtful things. Scripture says we don't have the right to judge in this way the Lord's servant. We're to seek to understand, to understand the perspective, to sympathize with, to love them, to encourage them. God is working in that other person's life just like he's working in your life and in mine. Another point of contention within the early church had to do with not only the diet or the things that they ate, but the observance of certain religious days. Doubts about days. Verse five, one person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day, he observes it to the Lord. He who does not observe the day, to the Lord he doesn't observe it. He who eats, he eats to the Lord. For he gives God thanks and he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. The problem with the church in Rome and many churches since is that some believers felt that they were more spiritual than their counterparts and each thought the other one was carnal. When in reality, they were both trying to do that which they felt pleased the Lord. They were both convinced in their own minds that they were right. For example, the Jews regarded the Sabbath day as the day of rest. It was holy, set apart. It was a day of worship on the seventh day of the week. They also had other days and seasons that were sacred to them. And they felt very strongly that these days must be observed. On the other hand, you had the Gentiles who wanted to separate themselves from any idea of observing a particular day as religiously sacred because it reminded them of their former pagan practices. There's still groups today that are unalterably convinced and dogmatically suggest that the only day to worship God is Saturday. It's the Sabbath day. While others say Sunday. I say worship God every day. 
It's not so much about the day, it's about the worship of God. And by the way, here at Calvary, we worship Saturdays and Sundays, so we're good. So you shouldn't have a problem. But I want to point out something I find interesting in the studying of this passage is that Paul doesn't answer the issue directly. He simply says, let each of you be convinced in your own mind. Again, this isn't a scriptural issue that he's dealing with so much as a matter of opinion. If you want to worship on Saturday, go for it. If you want to worship on Sunday, great. I'm so glad you're here. But do it as unto the Lord. If you just want to eat meat, wonderful. Have a barbecue. If you just want to eat vegetables, fantastic. Toss a salad. It's not a big deal. We shouldn't divide over it. People can still be right with the Lord even though they may have a liberty that I don't think God has given to me. And as long as it does not contradict Scripture or lead them into a life of sin, it's between them and the Lord. As soon, listen, as soon as it goes against God's word, the line is drawn. God sets the boundaries for us. And that is an entirely different matter altogether. Two of the most famous preachers of the Victorian era were Charles Spurgeon and Joseph Parker. They were really good friends. In fact, they would preach in one another's pulpits. However, they had a disagreement, and they ended up dividing between one another. Spurgeon accused Parker of being unspiritual because he attended the theater. Now, that was interesting because Spurgeon who was against going to the theater, smoked cigars, to which many believers were opposed to. In fact, it is somewhat humorous, but Spurgeon argued that he did not smoke cigars to excess. But when someone asked him what he meant by excess, he responded, no more than two at one time, is what he said. <laughs> but this conflict brewed between the two of them, and it ruined their fellowship, and it tainted their ministries, and reports went out in the newspaper of their disputes with one another. Who was right? Perhaps neither, perhaps both. By the way, as a side note, later on Spurgeon stopped smoking cigars because the cigar company found out that he was smoking them and they put it in the newspaper, these are the cigars that Spurgeon smokes. And so he stopped smoking from that day forward. But sometimes it's best to disagree agreeably while maintaining unity. In non-essential things, there should be charity among us. Paul shares a couple of practical instructions that will help us make our way through differences. First of all, he says, and we mentioned it a moment ago, let everyone be convinced in their own mind. You need to know that what you're doing is what God wants you to do. You need to be persuaded. You don't need to persuade me. You don't need to justify it to me or to anyone else. You need to do what God tells you to do. And ultimately, you're going to answer to God, just like I will. Secondly, we need to remember that our life ultimately belongs to the Lord. It says here in verse 7 through 9, For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, in other words, because our life is not our own, therefore, whether we live or die, we're the Lord's. 
For to this end, Christ died, rose, and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. Our lives as believers are not our own. The Bible tells us we've been bought with a price. Therefore, we're to glorify God in our body and our spirit, which, which are his. We belong to him. He purchased us with his own blood. And when you understand that your life is not your own and that you belong to the Lord, you understand that you're accountable to the Lord. You're not going to be doing things that are questionable or potentially stumbling yourself or other people. You're going to avoid those things because you know your life is not the Lord or your life is the Lord's and you want to please the Lord with a life that he's given you. Paul reminds his readers also that one day every single individual is going to stand before Jesus Christ and give an account of their life. He tells us in verse 10, he asks the question, why do you judge your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. It seems inconsistent. It's wrong for us to take the place of judge here on earth when who has the final say is the one that all of us are going to stand before, and that's Christ when he sits at his judgment seat, referred to as the Bema seat. It's written that every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Paul reminds the church then and the church today that there is a judgment seat that each believer is going to stand before, but we're not the ones sitting on the judgment seat judging our brothers or our sisters. The judgment seat is reserved for Jesus Christ. And if that is the case, why are we judging each other now over non-scriptural issues? Why are we, why are we debating over that? In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, Paul mentions this same judgment seat of Christ when he said, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive things done in his body according to that which he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Folks, every single person is going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And this judgment seat of Christ, referred to as the Bema seat, is where we receive rewards for the life that we've lived. We give an account of our life for the decisions that we've made, for the direction that we've gone, for the words that we've spoken, for the stewardship of our time and our resources. It's all gonna be accounted for and rewarded accordingly. And so because I know I'm gonna stand before Jesus and you're gonna stand before Jesus, Jesus is your judge and he's my judge as well. It's important to keep this in mind when dealing with others. Now, again, the question arises when you're in a passage like this or a study like this, because I think the same way. Some of you might be thinking, well, wait a second. What about unbiblical things? What about unscriptural things? What about sinful things? Again, let me say that that is a completely different subject. That is not what is being addressed in the context here. When something is unbiblical, when something is sinful, now we deal with it directly head on, just like the Bible says we're to do it in a way that pleases and honors the Lord. Thanks for joining us today for A Daily Walk with Pastor John Randall. You'll find us online at adailywalk.org. That's a good place for resources to help you grow in your daily walk. If you'd like prayer or have questions or comments you'd like to share with us, our email is adailywalk at gmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 877-242-0828. That's 877-242-0828. 
To watch today's message again or any message you may have missed in the series, download our free app. Simply search CCSJC. Be sure to stay tuned with Pastor John on Instagram at John P. Randall and on Twitter at PJRandall7. Make sure to join us next time when we'll again open the Word together, seeking to apply God's truth to your daily walk.